Okay. Let's get started, everybody. Uh, welcome back. So it's our last week of new material, which is hard to believe for me. It's really gone quickly. It seems like very recently it was nice outside and we were getting started, but now we're, we're wrapping up. So today what I want to do is finish off discussion of the Tsleil-Waututh Trans Mountain Pipeline report. There's a few more issues I want to talk about. Um, then I'm going to segue into a brief overview of the federal courts as that relates to administrative law. And then I'll finish up by talking about the Blueberry River, uh, Gautier, Gautier and, and Yahe case because some points in that will illustrate a few of the ideas I wanted to discuss when talking about the federal courts. So last week we concluded um, by watching the presentation of Tim Dixon talking about the funding issues and I, I mentioned how sort of scant attention that received in the judicial review context um, and how nobody had really grappled with you know, the very real concerns that he raised both in the report or at the judicial review level, which is obviously very disappointing. Today what I want to do though is to move on and talk about the um, review on the substance of the report and ultimately that resonates within the review of the substance of the governor in council decision because of this strange formulation we're working with where we can only judicially review the GIC decision but if the report is deficient it's not a report and so therefore the government council decision is deficient too and I want to explain the reason in substance why indeed the court found that the report was so deficient and also touch briefly on the consultation issue which led the court to find uh, a further deficiency. So when you get into the part of the decision dealing with this substantive review, you see again a number of issues raised and sort of shot down by the court. The uh, applicants for judicial review were really not winning on very many of their points and they raise a a broad array of issues, both procedural and substantive, that they asked the court to consider. And I just want to take a second to pause that this is a very hard aspect of challenging a major administrative decision, is trying to figure out well, how many issues are we going to raise. Frankly, if the court gets in the habit of saying no, 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 you know, when you finally get to a good issue, they might have already been. Uh, somewhat made up their mind against you. So you want to focus, uh, certainly, but at the same time, it can be very hard to predict which will be the issues that will get the court's attention. And, you know, I have to be honest, if I was advising a client on this report, I would have had a hard time predicting that this scoping issue around marine transportation would be the substantive issue to result in the decision to approve the pipeline being set aside. That's because, first off, you'll remember, the question of the scoping already went to the Federal Court of Appeal. I mentioned that last class. There was an earlier preliminary judicial review where Slaywood said, hold on, you can't ignore the um, 
project-related increase in marine shipping activities um, as it resonates within the environmental assessment component of your decision. And the Federal Court of Appeal, despite granting leave to allow Slaywood Tews to advance that, said, no, we're not going to interfere at this stage. And I would have read that as the court probably not being all that interested in the issue. And then, when you get the National Energy Board report, you get Chapter 14, which is up on the board. What's it called? Project-Related Increase in Shipping Activities. And what you get is a lengthy discussion of the expected increase and the effects of the increase in shipping on species at risk, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like you know, not only was the federal court not particularly interested in this issue, they didn't grapple with it on the preliminary uh, judicial review, but also the board maybe got that point and dealt with the issue. So I would have said, hey, let's focus on you know, some of these other concerns. Let's push that funding issue more. That looks like a good one. Let's push the cross-examination more. These are the types of things that I think I would have thought would be more, uh, more promising. But as we'll see, it was indeed this scoping issue that was found to be a substantive problem with the report. Why exactly that is, is convoluted, but the main takeaway I want you to have from this is this is a good illustration of when we talk about in a reasonableness review, having to consider not just the specific statute that creates the, not the, or the, the tribunal and maybe raises the question that's you know, before the court, but the full statutory regime that governs the substance of the problem the board is required to consider. Because the problem arose as a result of a failure to include marine shipping in the environmental assessment pursuant to the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. But the problem really resonated because that has a trickle-down effect on an obligation coming out of the Species at Risk Act. So you, in essence, have to get from the National Energy Board Act, which directs you right to the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act for a major project like this. But then you have to locate the Species at Risk Act. You have to put that all together to understand the substance of what was before the tribunal and what had to be decided. So it's an you know, illustration of something we saw in Vavilov and that is the idea that reasonableness needs to take in the full context, including the full statutory regime, you know, not just the specific statute that might be directly at issue. So what we see in the marine shipping is the National Energy Board saying to themselves, okay, look, we are the pipeline regulators. There is a whole other regulator that deals with shipping. That is not us. We don't know very much about marine shipping. So they say, when we're scoping what is before us, we see us as having two principal responsibilities, leaving aside Aboriginal consultation. The two principal responsibilities being, under the National Energy Board Act, to advise whether they recommend this pipeline as being convenient and necessary. The idea being, 
is this indeed infrastructure that's needed for the oil uh, and energy markets? And the second responsibility, as we recall, recently at this time given to the National Energy Board, was to conduct an environmental assessment. And they said, well, look, when we're considering whether this is a convenient and necessary project, in that context, we will happily have a look at marine shipping. However, when doing the environmental assessment, we're going to scope the assessment as not including marine shipping, but only including the direct project. So this led the National Energy Board to issue a report that does seem odd. And that is because within the marine shipping context, they say, yeah, there's going to be environmental effects from the increase in marine shipping. But they did not relay those in the context of the environmental assessment they were required to do. So despite suggesting that the marine shipping will cause environmental effects, they said the project as a whole will not cause any significant adverse environmental effects. Because the project was not determined to cause significant adverse environmental effects, a provision of the Species at Risk Act that is triggered when a project is found under the Environmental Assessment Act to cause significant adverse environmental effects was not triggered, was not considered. And that provision requires the decision maker to consider um, steps that can be taken to mitigate the impact of a project on a species at risk. And here the species at risk is, you know, perhaps the species that many people are most proud of in BC, the, the orcas off the shore. So the board in its report outlined the issues with relation to marine shipping. They outlined that there will be impacts on orca. But they did not recommend conditions of approval for the pipeline aimed at mitigating those effects. And in so doing, they did not comply with their obligations under the Species at Risk Act. So fundamentally, what brings down this decision on its substance? It's a failure to trace properly the different statutes that you are required to consider and the different obligations that they impose. And the court, you'll find, seems somewhat um, confused by the failure to include the project-related marine shipping within the environmental assessment component because they say it's pretty well established that there isn't an obligation when you're doing an environmental assessment to stick only to matters that are within your jurisdiction as a regulator. Rather, you're to consider the project broadly so that if a fisheries you know, regulator is doing an environmental assessment but there's impacts on species at risk, they ought to consider both those things. Um, you know, makes sense. 
So you had this sort of you know, strange decision which leads to an improper scoping, which the federal court could have fixed themselves a long time earlier, but they didn't, which leads to the court saying that this report is deficient because it doesn't contain mitigation conditions for these orcas as required by the Species at Risk Act. And so therefore, you, governor and council, were not armed with the material you needed to make a reasonable decision. You didn't have the right material before you that's required by the statutory scheme. So therefore, your decision cannot stand, and it is set aside. What's the remedy here? You send it back to the board to reconsider, to write a new report that scopes in the project-related marine shipping within the environmental assessment, and which takes into account the species at risk issues. So I'm going to pause on that and then talk a bit about consultation. But are there any questions about that sort of somewhat convoluted way that they found? Yeah. Would that mean that the parties all would have once again have a right um, for their arguments to be reheard, or does that mean that it just goes back to the board just to write a new report and use the materials that they already have? Yeah, they have some limited further hearing and further ability to make submissions, but it's not extensive and it doesn't reopen everything. It merely reopens that issue. Project-related marine shipping and species at risk. Yeah? So we're saying the government council's decision was unreasonable. That means that it was unreasonable for the government council to rely on this expert panel's lengthy, well-reasoned, relatively well-reasoned yes. decision. They yeah. Can't, they can't rely on it. Exactly. It was unreasonable to think that when I want to assess marine shipping, that I will rely on this report. It's a stretch, right? Um, the panel did make a mistake in its understanding of the environmental issues. But Usually, when we're talking about governor and council decisions, you know, we give them so much deference that it's very rare that you would um, say, well, there's a slight legal error in one memo that went to governor and council, so therefore the whole thing has to be set aside. That's not how we do that usually. It's very deferential. Uh, it's, you know, really it's within a broad range of reasonable possible decisions. And so um, if it feels like a stretch, I think it is. I think this all stems from what we talked about last class about how the court had decided that these reports are not independently judicially reviewable, but wanted to devise a um, sort of theory that would allow both for them to say when there isn't a actual legal right affected by a report, you can't review that report itself, but also to say that we're not going to allow, um, you know, otherwise reviewable errors in this administrative process to go unchecked. So it's a, I think your, your uncomfortableness with the way you sort of land that description, the GIC was unreasonable to rely on this lengthy report, um, that uncomfortableness is well-founded. Uh, it's a result of the sort of convoluted strange process. Um, 
so I, I frankly am partially responsible for this convoluted process, I think, because I was involved in this Taseco judicial review we talked about a while back. And in that one, there was this environmental assessment of 2012, and we didn't, I was on for Canada, and there was a judicial review brought of the panel report, and then a judicial review brought of the subsequent decision. And you know, we didn't object, and this went through the federal court, and they didn't really notice the problem. Um, but then it seemed unwieldy, I think, when they looked at it in retrospect, why are there these two judicial reviews going forward about the same decision? And there's also a problem, sort of practically, which is um, that first judicial review gets filed when the panel report gets issued within 30 days, as we'll see in federal courts, very tight deadlines. The GIC might take six months to get their decision out, which could render the whole panel report judicial review moot if they you know, go against the recommendations of it. So there is a, it's, it's a convoluted process. There's not really a clear right answer, but um, ultimately, yeah, you land in this sort of strange place where you have this threshold question, is this report a report, which allows you to, in essence, ask any judicial review question you would like to about the process or substance of leading to that report? And if it's not a report, then the governor and council decision will fall, it appears, from this, from this case and from the Gitkali case. So um, that's the sort of long and short of it. That's, no, that's the long of it, not the short of it. It's a long answer. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to move into the consultation question um, and then wrap up with sort of a postscript that will give you more procedural problems to chew over. So I didn't ask you to read the consultation component in length. Uh, obviously, this is not material that I can expect you to uh, cover on the exam. And certainly, it wouldn't be appropriate to get a, a deep HIDA analysis uh, in this exam. That would just be a missing the, the topic we're talking about, which is the admin law components. But I do want to be clear about the way that the consultation question and the admin law um, process intersect in this case, and then we can make perhaps a point more broadly about that. And so you'll remember we said last class that there's this somewhat um, unsatisfying to some split in the standard of review on the consultation, where the existence and scope of the duty to consult is reviewed on a standard of correctness, but the actual performance of the consultation is reviewed on a deferential standard of reasonableness. This leads to some people saying, well, it's a constitutional right. You know, if the court thinks inadequate consultation occurred they should say so, and they shouldn't say, well, I don't think it was, it was right, but I'll defer, you know, it wasn't so far out of bounds to be unreasonable. Um, but let's move aside from that and sort of understand more broadly, what is the intersection of consultation and this board's process? You know, what is the board even doing vis-a-vis -vis consultation. 
And in essence, the way the government has um, has evolved the way it discharges the duty to consult, I should say both governments, federal and provincial, they rely as much as possible on this sort of an independent board to perform and receive consultation you know, to the greatest extent possible. And the court endorses that in this case and they say, in a situation like this, where what you're really talking about are environmental effects and how those resonate on indigenous groups, they say where the effects of a proposed project on indigenous or treaty rights substantially overlap with the project's potential environmental impacts, the board is well situated to oversee consultations which seek to address those effects and to use its technical expertise to assess what forms of accommodation may be available. So they are now being asked to oversee the consultation in this process, which means the Crown consultation teams engage with First Nations, but they expect the outcomes of that consultation and a robust presentation of the nation's concerns to be presented to and considered by the National Energy Board. Now the court says this process, this National Energy Board effort, can be relied upon by the Crown as fulfilling some or all of the duty to consult. We'll remember, though, that the ultimate duty to consult still rests on the Crown. So if there is a deficiency, they can't say, well, don't complain to me, the National Energy Board had that deficiency. It is their responsibility to step in and fill in that deficiency before making a decision to approve or not approve a project. But this is a process that is, um, can be very unsatisfactory from a First Nations perspective. I'm just going to step outside of this case for a second to share a little bit of my own experience as to the, um, some of the problems with this, um, this framing. So for example, on the, on the Site C case, there was a joint review panel, federal-provincial joint review panel, very similar to this, that issued a report which was actually very uh, sort of muted, or it could go either way on whether the project's a good idea. The, the, the report was not an enthusiastic supporter of the project as a good idea. Um, Nevertheless, the federal government approved the project, and the French government did as well. And then First Nations brought judicial review applications saying that the project will breach their treaty rights. And the, the federal court and the BC Supreme Court, in two parallel judicial review applications, found that neither the federal nor provincial authorities at this stage of approving the project, 
had any obligation to actually assess whether the treaty rights of the Treaty 8 First Nations would be unjustifiably impacted by Site C. They said that the governor and council or the provincial counterpart is not an adjudicative body and it can't actually decide the substance of your rights. They said if you want to do that, you have to have a whole trial. So they said instead, all we can do is assess the adequacy of the process of consultation, basically asking, did you know what was going to happen and have a chance to raise your concerns? And in both cases, they said, yes, the consultation was adequate and go have a trial if you want to know if this project infringes your treaty rights. It's the same thing, in essence, in the Trans Mountain case, where you have these nations saying, I have Aboriginal title. I haven't gone through the years-long, decades-long process of proving that title, but I have it. You are going to infringe my, my title, and uh, you know can't be done. We didn't see the clips, but several nations ask the, the National Energy Board to declare that they have title, to say this is a constitutional issue that's come up before you. You need to grapple with it and answer it, at least for the purposes of this project alone. You know, For this project, we are gonna find you have title. If you want a broader declaration, maybe you have to go to court. But for this project, we're gonna assess it on the basis you have titles, what they ask for. They won't do that. So you have this body that's not capable of understanding or deciding the substance of a nation's concerns with the projects, but which is asked to assess the adequacy of consultation on that project. So they don't grapple with the extent of your rights, but are asked to determine if there is a process that adequately protected your rights which has a, a dissonance, sort of an obvious dissonance in it. So um, ultimately, you know, where this lands is you have this sort of awkward role that this regulator is put in of being thrust into the middle of grappling with these substantive concerns these nations have and outstanding questions as the scope of their rights that they are not in a good position to answer, but that leaves them in a poor role to discharge the role that they have been given of assessing consultation. It's a, it's a difficult spot for them. And this also creates huge problems for industry because they simply don't know what the rights are that they're grappling with. And in relation to any individual project, that can be a real problem for industry. In relation to a project that cuts across nation after nation after nation, it's a, a huge problem for industry. All they want is certainty, right? And so they want to know what the nation has or doesn't have in the, by the way of rights. So sort of fundamentally what you have here, I think, is a a problem, um, the relations between the Crown and the Indigenous Nations in Canada, which nobody really wants to, to grapple with, 
that doesn't get proactively addressed by the government. You know, certainly the, um, in response to the Site C project, they didn't say, okay, well, let us go to court and find out for sure what the treaty rights are. They said, if you don't think, if you think this assess your treaty rights, sue us. You know, they don't, they don't, there's nothing proactive. The government doesn't try to settle these things. They rather wait for the nation to force the issue. And the rubber hits the road in this environmental assessment process, which as you'll see, significantly extended the administrative process leading up to this National Energy Board hearing. There was like years of consultation activities. But then there's found to be further inadequate consultation by the federal court requiring more consultation to occur. So you have the industry doesn't know what the rights are. They don't know if they can or can't build something. They don't know if they're going to have to, um, you know, there's the goalpost seems to move for them constantly. The nations don't have an easy way to um, have their rights recognized and protected. And these regulators are tasked with nearly impossible questions. So it's a, you know, it's a very um, unsatisfactory system, in my view, and a system which sort of lands in administrative law, but that's a process that isn't particularly well suited to grappling with these issues either. So you know, I don't have a solution, um, but it's a, I wanted you to kind of get a sense as to the, the scope of the problem we're talking about. So in this case, you have a finding that there's inadequate consultation. But what's interesting is this is not inadequate consultation leading up to and including the board process. They say everything before the board's process, and indeed the board's process itself for receiving and understanding the concerns of the nations, you know, including that $40,000 is all you get funding, that was all fine, that was all adequate. Where they find a problem is in consultation on the report itself, and that's a separate phase of consultation. Sometimes they call it phase three, sometimes phase four. I forget which phase it is in this. I think it's phase three in, called in this. Uh, you'll see either one, depending on the framing they, they put out. So they say, look, in this phase of consultation, all you did was send people who could act as, they say, mere note takers, who could listen to the band, write down what was said, and report that back to the governor and council. You didn't send anybody with the trust and authority of cabinet who could actually engage substantively with the nations on their concerns about the report and how it captures or reflects their concerns about the project. So the court says that was inadequate you need somebody with this trust and authority of cabinet. And indeed, they ended up appointing um, ex-Supreme Court Justice Frank Iacobucci to oversee the, the redoing of the consultation. So they said, we're set aside on that basis. You have to redo consultation. So coming out of this decision, the government has two tasks. A, do this environmental assessment of the project-related marine shipping, including the species at risk assessment, 
and B, redo your, you know, your consultation on the panel report. So moving to the postscript now. They do both those things. They issue a new report. The government, in the meantime, has bought the pipeline. That goes to the governor and council. Governor and council, not surprisingly, approves the pipeline. Then this is the part that I think is going to maybe feel very unsatisfying procedurally. So you then have the same people, or you know, you thought you won. It's a year later, a year and a half later, you're right back to where you started. So what do you do? Well, you try to judicially review this next decision. If you'll recall, though, I said this right at the outset, the process for reviewing a National Energy Board decision requires that you ask for leave to review. So that's a leave, a threshold leave question. And that goes directly to the Federal Court of Appeal. There's no federal court level. This goes right to the federal court of appeal, decides this is a matter of first instance. That's in the National Energy Board Act. The leave decision is decided by a single judge of the federal court. That judge, Justice Stratus, decided in this case to take a very narrow view of what issues you could get leave to judicially review on. And he said, we are, I am not going to let this court become a tool that opponents of this project are going to use to tie this thing up in judicial review forever. I am therefore not going to allow you to re-argue any issue that was or could have been argued the first time around in relation to that judicial review we read. Sounds kind of fair on its face. You don't want to re-argue everything. But here's the problem. The opponents of the pipeline project, they won the first time around, right? So could they seek to appeal their win? You can't. So they won on two issues, but they lost and had no ability to appeal all those issues that they lost on. And those are some of the issues that go more to the core of the adequacy of the process and the reasonableness of the project as a whole. The issues they won on are kind of little hoops to jump through that are very doable. Take this recommendation that was in the context of your National Energy Board hat and turn it into a species at risk analysis and do a bit more consultation. Okay, that's all doable. Do this panel process again with full cross-examination rights. Do this panel process again while funding nations up to half a million dollars or, you know, per nation what they ask for for full participation so they can have actual science. Um, you know, that's a much bigger, heavier ask. That would have been a much bigger problem for the project. 
So you had what turned out to be just an empty victory the first time around. And in many ways, they might have been better off with a loss on everything. Because then they could have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada very well might have taken this case up. And they would have had a chance to run you know, any one of these issues and at least get a second look at it. Because, and you probably don't know, it's, it's very rare that you have a decision that's final that goes against you where there's no ability to appeal it to anybody. But indeed that happened to them twice, not just with those issues they lost on the first time around, but also with that leave application they lost on. They tried to get a full bench of the Federal Court of Appeal to review that decision, they wouldn't. They tried to get the Supreme Court of Canada to consider that issue, and they wouldn't consider that either. So ultimately what you're left with is a sort of disappointing process for the nations and the other opponents where they raise these issues, they win on two things, they don't win on the things that would have really advanced their interests of uh, being opposed to this pipeline, and then they are shut out from ever raising those issues again. So, you know, the, the, I think the, um, this case shows how broad and complex the statutory schemes can be both in the substance but also how the procedural sort of maze you navigate on these judicial reviews can be complicated and can lead to unsatisfactory outcomes for some. All right. Any questions about that case? Yeah. Regarding the two things that the government had to go fix, if they didn't do an adequate job and opponents wanted to judicially review that, are they barred from that? They could review those. Yeah, they could review the adequacy of the things that they went to redo, because that wasn't decided the first time around. So that's new. But any issue that was or could have been raised. And there's some new charter issues that were raised that were never considered. There's some like, really interesting issues on the second time around, but just never given a chance to be heard. Yeah. This might sound like a dumb question, but why couldn't you appeal a win? I know I've read a few, especially torts cases, that often appeal on grounds. So say, for example, you know, you say I have a finding that my case is only worth $20,000. I'm going to appeal that and say I had $100,000. Yeah, damages. it's a great question. It's not a dumb question at all. And the answer is it's this, this um, legal principle. Appeals are from orders, not reasons. So what's the, you know, the order that they got at the first level? This decision is quashed, set aside, and remitted for reconsideration, which is exactly what they want fundamentally. And so you, yeah, you, you can't appeal because you've got the legal outcome that you wanted, and you can't appeal just on the basis of the reasons. Now, there's been some talk about, should they have tried to just file a protective application for leave to appeal, state it, and then argue there's something um, that, you know, special circumstances should have led the court to consider it in this case. Well, hindsight being 2020, yeah, you should have tried something, I guess, because what you tried didn't work. Um, but generally, yeah, the principle is if you get the order you're asking for, you don't have an appeal from them. Yeah? But can you not appeal to enhance the scope of their order? 
So here the order of is only on two issues, right? So can you not appeal and say that I should have won on the other issues as well? Well, I mean, I suppose you might have been able to appeal to say there should have been, and you'd have to look, frankly, at the nature of the order sought in the judicial review in the originating document, too, to see what you're kind of bound by in the pleadings. If you had said, I want an order quashing and setting it aside, and also an order directing or declaring that there must be oral cross-examination or something like that, then you might have had a, an appeal. But if you're if your relief asked for in the originating document, the notice of application for judicial review, or notice of application for review, judicial review, I suppose, um, was simply, you know, nature of order sought, quash and remit. You know, you, you would have a hard time there. Uh, of course, again, this is the hindsight being 2020, um, you know, you, you would have tried to advance some aggressive arguments if you had known things that had lined up. Um, but, you know, to me, the real problem lies with the limited leave to uh, bring that second judicial review. That was where the, the answer probably should have been found to avoid some fairness. All right, so let's, um, let's talk a bit about federal court then, uh, and then we'll be bouncing back into Aboriginal um, rights and administrative law. Um, so federal, is anybody here experienced with federal court? Got anything there? Yeah, what did you do in federal court? Yeah. Um, it was just like um, a look and sign removal application. Okay. Yeah, in Vancouver? And was it oral or was it in, uh, in writing? It's going to be oral. It's going to be, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, did you find it tricky to navigate federal court? Um, the ground working with is really nice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Because um, you've talked to a lot of lawyers in Vancouver, and you say federal court, they're like, I don't know nothing about that. Like, I don't do that. Um, which is a shame, because in many ways, federal court is a much better run court than the BC Supreme Court. Um, the, there's two things that make me say that. One is they have timelines that they enforce which if you've done things in BC Supreme Court, you know yeah. meeting a timeline is the exception, very much. And while that's nice as a lawyer, for the system as a whole, things just drag. And you'll have a thing that's been on ice for two years, and then all of a sudden somebody will chirp up and say, oh, we're advancing that thing, you remember that one? So it, you know, it's very inefficient, your clients hate it, when they're like, what's happening with my case? I'm like, well, that guy hasn't, Met the deadline, I'm like great. So there must be a consequence. I'm like, no, there's no consequence whatsoever for missing the deadline. All I can do is write more letters to him, basically. Um, so that's frustrating, and that's part of the reason for some of the backlog in the BC Supreme Court. Federal court, you have a deadline. You can consent between the parties to an extension of half of that deadline. Say it's a 30-day time period. You consent to a further 15 days. Anything further than that, you have to have a motion justifying the extension. Um, you can't consent to it. There has to be a determination by the court. And that just means people make their deadlines. Things move quickly, which is especially good for judicial review, where you're sort of supervising an administrative process that's supposed to move quickly. So that's one reason I like federal court. The other reason I like federal court, and this is something that you might have experience with, 
Um, who here has done, like, you go to court and the judge is like, oh, I just got to sign this. Uh, okay, I'm going to get my materials together. It is absolutely the rule. The exception is the judge has any clue what they're sitting down to find to, to hear that day. They've never in BC Supreme Court on a chambers matter carefully considered the written submissions and the written materials before you get there. That is not the case in federal court at all. In federal court, they arrive, the judges arrive, they spend a week in uh, Vancouver hearing cases here. They have all the materials for every case they're gonna hear that week, and they inevitably have read that, at least the arguments. And that makes it so much faster so much faster. I think it makes it about twice as fast. And I say that because I know from my experience in administrative law, when I go to do a judicial review in the BC Supreme Court, on average it takes about two days. And if I do an appeal of that judicial review, it takes one day. The Court of Appeal does read their material in and as you remember, when you do an appeal of a judicial review, it's the exact same thing. It's a rerunning of the judicial review. You're, you're the, the appellate court's in the same shoes as the lower court. So it's the same question, the same evidence, same everything else. It takes half the time because they've read the materials ahead of time. So in federal court, you always have that advantage. So you've got a prepared court that acts on quick timelines. So, you know, don't, um, don't be scared of federal court or don't underestimate its, uh, you know, the, the usefulness of it. Um, so what is a federal court and how does it operate? The federal court is created pursuant to Section 101 of the Constitution Act 1867. You'll remember we talked a bit about Section 96 courts, right? Courts created under Section 96 of the Constitution Act, 1867. And those are those courts, um, the superior courts of inherent jurisdiction. And in fact, they're not created under Section 96 so much as their existence is recognized and presumed under Section 96. Section 101 of the Constitution Act, 1867, provides the Parliament of Canada may, from time to time, provide for the establishment of any additional courts for the better administration of the laws of Canada. So these are optional courts that can be created by Parliament. And Section 101 has been read as meaning that Parliament is the federal Parliament and the laws of Canada that can be administered are federal laws. That's a convoluted issue, but there is an interpretation of the Constitution as a whole, which makes you realize that when they say Parliament in that context, we're talking about the federal Parliament. And when they're talking about laws of Canada, they're talking about laws emanating from that federal parliament, which means you know, a, a BC law is obviously a law in force in Canada, but not a law of Canada, which means right, that federal court's jurisdiction 
requires it to be administering federal law. So that's sort of the limit on federal court that is really important to keep in mind. You need to have an issue that relates to federal law. If you have a federal issue that also touches on provincial law, they can consider that as well. But you need a hook of some federal law at issue. Otherwise, you're outside of the constitutional authority of a federal court when you have to go to BC Supreme Court. So when you're thinking about federal court, the first thing to think about is high level. We're talking about courts created by Section 101 of the Constitution Act, created by Parliament under Section 101. So how do they create this court? It's through regular legislation. There's the Federal Courts Act, which now is the act which um, governs the jurisdiction of the federal court. So I'm just going to pull that act up. And you see that um, section four, it, they say continues the federal court because it was created under a, a previous version of this act. And it is constituted as a court of law, equity, and admiralty in Canada for the better administration of laws of Canada and as a superior court of record having civil and criminal jurisdiction. So in a broad sense, that's what they're saying the court is. Now, it's not a superior court in the sense that it has inherent jurisdiction. Superior court of record, I think, just means we really want this to be treated like a court, not a tribunal. But then the key provision for administrative law purposes is section 18 of the Federal Courts Act. Oops. And here you see, subject to section 28, the federal court has exclusive original jurisdiction to issue, and you see, oh, these are those old things we talked about a long time ago. An injunction, writ of certiori, writ of prohibition, writ of mandamus, or writ of quo warranto. So they're saying federal court has the exclusive jurisdiction to issue these old remedies, which are at the heart of administrative law, or grant declaratory relief against any federal board, commission, or other tribunal. So if I want one of these remedies against one of these bodies, I have to go to the federal court. Section 28 just talks about the federal court of appeal sometimes having the original jurisdiction. So when you look at this, you think, okay, that's interesting. Um, but what is a federal board commission or other tribunal? What, uh, what does that encompass? How broad is that? And the answer is absurdly broad way broader than you might think looking at those, those words. So you go up to the definition section. You see federal board or other, federal board commission or other tribunal means any body, person or persons having, exercising or purporting to exercise jurisdiction or powers conferred by or under an act of parliament 
or by or under an order made pursuant to a prerogative of the crown, other than the tax court and a few other exceptions. But you realize, wait a second, anybody who has any power given to them by any federal statute, traceable to any federal statute, is a federal board, commission, or other tribunal. So if you go and you know, get a passport, that person at the, reg at the, at the counter who's stamping your, your application, they're technically a federal board, commission, or other tribunal. They're a person exercising power provided to them pursuant to federal legislation. So anytime you have a federal decision maker who issues any sort of decision that you're unhappy with, if what you want is an administrative law remedy, set aside that decision, something like that, you have to go to federal court. You remember section 18 said exclusive original jurisdiction. If you go to the BC Supreme Court and say to them, I would like you to set aside the decision of this federal fisheries officer, they'll say, sorry, that's in the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal courts. You want to remember the distinction between administrative law remedies and remedies you seek through a civil action here. If you want money, if you say that I have suffered a loss as a result of some unlawful activity of a federal decision maker, and I don't want the decision set aside, I don't want an order that they have to make a new decision, I just want someone to pay me for what I've lost, well then you're not seeking one of those remedies that you saw in section 18, and then you're actually allowed to go to either the BC Supreme Court or the federal court, you can choose. And I think this is where the federal court is underutilized. People shy away from it because they're unfamiliar with it. But if you want to actually get an action for damages done and done quickly, and part of what you're seeking is relief against the federal government, consider going to federal court. It's going to be faster. All right, so um, so federal court is important for administrative law purposes because basically half of the laws that you might be asked to judicially review are going to be federal laws. Half the decisions people might be upset with are federal decisions. And you need to start that in federal court. It's also important to know that the federal court timeline to challenging a decision is 30 days. It's fast. Further, the federal court um, process is so easy to start. In the BC Supreme Court, to do a petition for judicial review, we'll talk more about this next class, but to, to start a petition for judicial review, you have to set out a long and detailed pleading, setting out you know, the facts that you have a problem with, the remedy you seek, et cetera, et cetera. With the federal court, the notice of application for judicial review, it's short, it's tight. You can put those things out in an hour. 
So if you have a client who comes in and you're not certain if they um, should proceed with the judicial review, if they ought to instead maybe seek action for damages, if maybe their remedy lies against a provincial entity in BC Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. But they say, yeah, this went down three weeks ago. Just get a judicial review application in federal court. You know, file it, it's like a hundred bucks. And you can always withdraw. You know, you want to just get these things started. Um, once you start something in, in federal court, though, you do have these strict timelines to follow, so you have to stay on top of those things. You're going to have the federal crown on the other side almost always, which is really nice uh, because they know the process very well. The lawyers tend to be very helpful and willing to work with people to help them get through the federal court process. And then ultimately, um, you can be entitled to have a hearing uh, anywhere in Canada that's convenient for you, more or less. Most major cities will have federal court sittings. In Vancouver, anybody know where the federal court is? You would never guess it, but it's right downtown. If you're, in, if you're downtown and you're at the Pacific Center, there's the big TD Tower, right? You know that big black TD Tower? Right across the street, there's like smaller black TD Tower looking thing. Um, and it's in the smaller one. And you just get in and you like get in the elevator and then it opens up and you're in the middle of a court. It's very strange. And it's also, it's funny because there's right across the street, there's like hotels and there's like no blinds. I've been like making submissions and I'm like, so it's it feels a bit a bit odd. Um, it's actually much more security there. Like you go there and there's there's metal detectors and armed guards. It didn't used to be the case. But actually, I had a just review once where apparently um, somebody called the uh, the court and was like, "Hey, is there going to be metal detectors at the court today?" And they're like, "Well, there is now." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but so it's a it's a very strange experience going there. Um, but then you know once you once you get in there, you have this um, this nice courtroom. Judge comes out. Inevitably, they say, you know, Mr. Pulleyblank, I've read all your materials. I've got three main questions that I want you to answer. Sometimes they'll say, I need to hear from you. I just want to hear from that person because if they can't answer these questions, then we're we're done here. Um, they almost always issue written reasons. They don't do oral judgments like the BC Supreme Court does. And uh, you know, I think you'll find it's a very, it's a very pleasant place to litigate. It's like I, I endorse it strongly. Um, so that's about what I had on federal court. Any questions about that? All right, let's take our break and we'll come back and talk about self-governance and oversight of self-governance. <laughs> All right, sorry about that. Just had the greatest feeling though where you realized that you might have dropped your phone somewhere and it's exactly where you thought you were. <laughs> so that's nice. Um, all right, so let's get back to the intersection of Aboriginal administrative law. And you remember we, in the chapter we read, we saw those sort of three broad areas that were covered the one being um, administrative law interfacing with the 
provision of funding to First Nations, and there was some excellent discussion of the deficiencies of that, and I think we saw a good illustration of that in a microcosm through Tim Dixon's presentation on the National Energy Board. Then we saw judicial review as being used in relation to Aboriginal rights and the duty to consult. And we saw you know, sort of a mixed story there with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion where you did indeed have the court setting aside the approval for a major pipeline at gigantic expense. Like delaying that pipeline a year is a, a huge uh, dollar amount that was um, you know, at stake in part in the name of upholding better consultation. But we also saw that um, many of the concerns that nations had with consultation, including that threshold question of funding, were not um, given support through the judicial review process. So, you know, mixed bag there, it's a useful tool to have for Aboriginal groups, but the deficiencies with respect to the judicial review process sometimes push you into actions and sometimes lead to you know, less than satisfactory results for nations, perhaps not surprisingly. Now we're gonna to turn to the final area the book talked about, the intersection of Aboriginal and administrative law. And that's specifically the oversight of banned governance that can be available through the courts. And this is in many ways the most fraught because the idea that um, a band will govern itself and yet be subjected to oversight by the colonial court raises some obvious concerns from, uh, for some people. But on the flip side, band governance, if it's going to wield real power, which it does, can affect the legitimate interests of its members and non-member people as well. And the notion that they would get less protection from the courts because they are members of a band you know, also can strike you as wrong. So it's, it's a very difficult question. Um, what I want to illustrate in this, in the case we read, is I think a fairly uncontroversial exercise of this oversight power, which may help you, know, you understand in some senses why it can be good for all that the federal court, um, in this case, can interfere with internal band governance and make orders on those individuals in band leadership. Um, but I don't want to leave the bigger problems behind, so we'll touch base on those again at the end. So this case, um, Gautier, I can't say that, Gautier and uh, Yahe, the first thing you'll notice is the name of the case is unlike other administrative law cases you tend to see, where you see two, two people's names against each other. It's not somebody versus Canada, somebody versus British Columbia. And that is often the case in these banned governance disputes where the government, well, the court, it is an emanation of government, 
besides the dispute, the government does not get involved you know, on one side or the other. And so in this case, what you have is Blueberry River First Nations. Um, this is a First Nation in northeastern British Columbia. They're Treaty 8 First Nation. They adhered to Treaty 8 in 1900-something. They are in an area that has been devastated by development. They're basically right in the middle of um, a fracking country. It's, it's pretty grim up there. The oil and gas development has, has made that, um, that area, when you go up in a, in, a, in a helicopter, look just grim, just very grim. Conversely, though, because of all the development and all the consultation and accommodation that's occurred, um, there is a significant amount of money that that band has, you know, access to. So there's, um, well, not a, not a, a rich band in, you know, an absolute sense. Certainly, there is a lot of interest in governance of that band because there's significant power that's wielded. And so what the nation did is they invoked a part of the Indian Act, which allows a nation to set up its own governance code, its own governance rules. Basically, the default is, you know, you still get band governance pursuant to the band council system as imposed upon the nations through the Indian Act. But if the nation wants to go through a process to ratify a different governance structure, they're entitled to do so. And indeed, that's what Blueberry River did not very long ago. I mean, this is like 10 years ago they did that. The structure they came up with, similar to other uh, bands, but has this um, setup where you have five councillors and a chief. But the chief has a vote on council. So you have six voting, uh, six people able to vote with the consequent potential for deadlock, right? Three to three. And that is exactly what happened here. And the deadlock got atrocious. So Blueberry River. Um, the chief, Chief Yahe, and his brother, another counselor, and a third counselor stopped functioning at all with the other three counselors. Part of this arose in relation to an investigation of improper business activities by alleged improper business activities by Chief Yahe and his brother. And the idea being that they were in violation of banned rules about uh, running a business that they were funneling contracts that were obtained you know, for the band through and were requiring cash payouts and all these various allegations that um, haven't been determined one way or the other yet. So there was a movement within Blueberry River First Nations to remove Chief Yahe as chief. And the band governing 
process has a provision which allows the band members to sign petitions. And if enough members, I think it's 60%, but I could be wrong, of the band members sign a petition saying we want to remove this person from office, then that can be submitted to any counselor who then passes that on to the chief operating officer of the band, who then, in turn, has to schedule a meeting, a band council meeting, where this issue will be determined, and contact every person who signed the petition, advising them at this meeting, and inviting them to confirm that indeed, you know, I signed this petition and I still desire this person to be removed from office. So you had this sort of council that was at loggerheads. Then you have this petition, this, this report attaching adequate number of petitions submitted. And it was submitted to one of the counselors who's on the not Chief Yahe side. She gives it to the Chief Operating Officer. And what the Chief Operating Officer does with it is just nothing. She sits on it. And what the Chief Yahe side does is they just stop having band council meetings altogether. Custom code demands that there be two band council meetings a month they just don't hold them. They don't hold them at all. So you have deadlocked governments. You have a clear obligation in the custom code to hold the meetings twice a month. And you have a clear obligation on the chief operating officer to take this petition, these petitions, put them on the agenda at a meeting, contact the signatories, invite them to confirm their, their uh, intent, and if enough people confirm their intent, you know, the chief will be ousted from office. So what do you do now with this deadlock? And this is where I think you probably see being able to go to federal court is not a bad thing. So basically everybody raced to federal court because before going to federal court, the non-chief Yahe group, they said we're gonna schedule a meeting. The other three didn't show up. They said, well, you didn't show up, you can't vote. Uh, we're voting to oust you as chief and we're gonna oust that chief operating officer who's sitting on the report also. Chief Yahe group says, no, 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 we're going to federal court. Federal court says, you didn't have quorum, can't do that, that was atrocious. Um, before they even make that order, actually, the, the counselors rescind their motion. They say, okay, we couldn't do that, sorry. But this creates more and more bad blood. But so what you have in this case is the federal court considering this issue of you know, can indeed uh, this 
or, or should this court intervene in this banned governance dispute to try to resolve this dilemma, which has seized up banned governance entirely? And the first thing you'll note, or one of the first things you'll note in the decision is the court addresses the question of its own jurisdiction. At paragraph 32, you'll see the federal court saying, I concur with the parties that, a court, that the court has jurisdiction in this matter. The custom code came into effect as a result of ministerial order pursuant to section 74.1 of the Indian Act. Each of the chief counsel and chief operating officer exercise powers conferred by federal law and each in their respective capacities are a federal board, commission, or other tribunal. So this is tying into what we talked about before the break. You see the court saying, look, how are you even a banned counsel? Well, that's a fraught question because they would say we're a banned counsel because of indigenous law, which predates any Indian Act. But the federal court says, no, your powers actually come from uh, the, the Indian Act because there was a order made pursuant to a power under the Indian Act which conferred these powers on you. And because we can trace your powers to federal legislation, you are a federal board commission or other tribunal. You know, from a First Nations perspective, that in and of itself is a, uh, can be a problematic uh, articulation. I've heard people say, hold on, like, what are you saying? That I'm, I'm part of the federal government now? That's not how I see myself. Um, but that is the legal theory upon which jurisdiction of the federal court rests to get into this sort of a banned dispute. So the next thing I think that's interesting that I don't think I've touched on previously, but is worth knowing as an admin lawyer, is, well, what's the standard of review to apply here? You have inaction, right? There's not been a decision um, saying, we will not hold ban meetings for these reasons. There's not been a decision saying, I will not move forward with this report for these reasons. They just have done nothing. And what is asked for is a mandatory order. Hey, comply with your obligations. So the court has said in those circumstances, it's not a question of the standard of review, but rather what's required is the person asking for the relief must, in essence, satisfy the injunction test. You have to show that there is a legal right, that you can't just adequately sue for damages later, and that it's an appropriate place to exercise the court's discretion. So there's just a broad discretionary component to it. So if we're just thinking again about the interface of the courts and the nation, we're seeing, in essence, a correctness standard being applied to the interpretation of their own custom code. The court is saying, I don't know decision to 
to review, so I am going to decide if there's a legal right here. I am going to interpret your law for you and make a binding order in relation to it. So you can see again uneasy tension there. Why is it that you know, this residential tenancy branch gets all this deference? Uh, you're the expert here, but a band that creates its own governance structure you know, gets a, a first instance correctness review. Well, here it's because there wasn't a decision made, but again, there's, a, there's that tension that, that you want to just have in the back of your mind when thinking about it always being fraught when you're dealing with federal court oversight of banned governance. So the court then gets into it, and you know, once they get into it, it's, it's pretty easy for them, I think. They say, well, it says here you have to have meetings twice a month, and you haven't been having them. And it says here that once you get this, these petitions, you shall post them and you know, continue on, and have the, have the meeting to consider them. You haven't done that either. So they say, in this circumstance, you know, what's that issue? Is the governance right that's shared by everybody? Damages isn't an appropriate remedy. I can't say, oh, we'll just give you some money for your government, you know, not following its laws. So they say, you know, it's an appropriate circumstance to issue this mandatory order and to say, you have meetings and you post the report. Now, you might also wonder, like, well, if this was that clear, why did the other side even go to the trouble of defending this? And the answer is that they tried to run a clean hands argument. And this is something we've touched on briefly, but I wanted to sort of draw out a bit more in this context. And I want you to recall tying some earlier themes from the course that judicial review remedies are equitable in nature, right? They come from the courts of equity. That's why they're, we've got the funny names of certiorari and mandamus, and et cetera, et cetera. These are equitable remedies. And what's maybe the first thing you should remember about equitable remedies is that they're always discretionary. And have you taken equitable remedies? Have people taken them yet? No. It's a really good course. I like that one a lot. Um, it used to be just two credits. Like it was a little course. I'm not sure if that's still the same case. And Tony Shepard's not here anymore, is he? No, that's too bad. He was the best. His office was just this like undulating hill of paper that he would he would read something, and throw it in the ground, and then it would just sort of like it would his chair would be kind of askew. <laughs> This, Matt was a wonderful guy. Um, anyway, so, so Tony Shepard beat in my head. You know, the first thing about equitable remedies is they're discretionary. And part of that discretion is, you know, they used, in the maxims, they use the male pronouns. But they say, you know, he who seeks equity must do equity. And that has been extrapolated into this clean hands doctrine. You heard of that before, the clean hands? Yeah. And so what was the defense for the Yahe group as against the, the other group of counselors? To say, hey, look at how atrocious these people are acting. It's, you know, they can't come to you and demand equity. They tried to oust us 
from governance by holding a meeting that you know, we didn't attend, where there wasn't even quorum. There also was an issue where there was a, a meeting that was called on short notice that the other counselors said, man, we're not coming to, we're being treated unfairly and we're not gonna participate in your meeting. So the Yahi group um, makes a clean hands argument against the counselors. The counselors, in essence, say, um, we might have made some mistakes, but not enough to disentitle us to equitable relief. And the court ultimately agrees with the counselors, but for the broader reason that they say, well, look, who's really having their rights infringed here? It's not really the counselor's right to have meetings where they can you know, go talk to each other. It's the band's right to have governance. So I'm not going to let mistakes that were made by the various counselors be the reason for which I um, you know, refuse this relief, which will sort of free the logic and, and let the governance go forward. Um, but the court does find, you know, there's been enough bad conduct on both sides that they refuse to order either side costs of the hearing. So they say, well, you both bear your own legal costs, but let's get this governance moving. Um, So I, I should have said I argued this case. I don't think I mentioned that. But the I made a strategic call, which I think is probably a good thing to have in the back of your minds, which is um, if you can be on the side of let's solve a problem as opposed to let's not solve a problem, that's a better framing to be on as an advocate. So for this hearing, I went in with the idea of rather than sort of browbeating the judge into saying why I'm right and why exactly what I say needs to happen, to say, look at the mess we're in. You have the power to solve it. Let's figure this out together. And a lot of judges really like that sort of a proactive approach. So it's something to keep in the back of your mind that um, judges don't like being told what they must do. They like being told what they can do and why they should do something, why it's just fundamentally fair to do something. And if you can um, you know, be on that side of you can and you really should want to help here, that's always a good place to be. Um, and so you know, in essence, what I decided was I'm not going to get into the weeds of the he said, she said, whose fault is what. Let's just say here's the problem. Let's all solve it together. And so I, just, I think that's a good litigation tactic. Um, at least it worked here. So, but I probably was the reason I didn't get costs, but rather not get costs than you know, lose the whole thing. Um, there's a bit of a postscript here again. Um, the court made an interesting order. You may have noticed it, it's kind of thrown in there. They say, in essence, I will remain seized of this matter and you can come back to me with further problems about this dispute. Um, that's a rather extraordinary remedy. You very rarely see a court remain seized of a matter after they're done with it. We touched on that earlier in this course, in fact, about something that sort of 
different about admin tribunals is that they do have an ongoing regulatory relationship, whereas usually a judge decides something, and then they're functus, right? They're done, it's over. But here he said, Justice Phelan said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay involved. You can come back to me if the problem happens going forward. And um, it was very prescient of him to do that because they just didn't comply uh, with the order to have meetings. They just didn't do it. So a few months later, went back before Justice Phelan and were like, they're in contempt of your order. And that's a sort of extra fraught thing to do because what you're saying now is this indigenous, you know, this elected leader of indigenous group should face whatever punishment you as the court deem worthy and appropriate, up to and including jail, for not administering, you know, the band's affairs in the way that you think is appropriate. You know, that's, that's a, that's a heavy-handed remedy. You don't see political leaders facing jail very often. Um, you see abandonment of, of you know, rules of procedure and norms pretty regularly in governance, and you don't see, you know, we're gonna throw people in jail, the leader in jail. So um, not, a, not a light remedy to pursue. And in essence, what the counselors did is once the, the court said, okay, well, I see the problem here, they said, all right, let's, we don't want, um, you know, the contempt finding, we just want governance to go ahead. So let's let's drop the whole contempt issue and let's just get this back on track. And Justice Dalen agreed and sort of now finally meetings are happening. Um, but he actually, he rectified the cost issue because on the contempt motion, he was like, well, how much costs do you say that your side's entitled to, to the you know, non-Yahe counselors? And they said, $3,000, so He's like, all right, I'll double that. I'll give you $6,000, sort of to give you what you should have gotten maybe the first time around, which is you know, within his jurisdiction to do, but very surprising. You never see that happen. So, um, so anyways, what you see here, I think, is on the whole a positive story about the um, governance of a nation benefiting from federal court oversight in order to get past the logjam, which has enabled the governance to resume. And while there still is great dispute around whether this person should be removed from office, um, there is at least the ability to do routine band business at these meetings in, um, in an ordinary way. Um, I'll maybe give you a quick postscript if you're interested on that. Um, that petition to remove Chief Yahe. And so they ultimately did hold that meeting um, after a whole nother court process because there was more resistance and it never really ends. And at that meeting, um, they fell five short. So they, they got this close to, to removing him. But then the five people, they couldn't get in touch with to verify their signatures, um, which is in itself a remarkably difficult process because you've got members all over, you've got some members who are in very remote locations, some who are you know, incarcerated. It's very, very tricky to get people together at this type of meeting. Um, but the upshot of it all is that the meetings progressed, 
Um, people didn't feel like their petition was ignored, which is valuable in and of itself. And, um, and the, the, there was a limited sort of intervention to keep the business going forward. But even in this sort of positive story, I think you can see lots of instances where there is significant tension between the idea of Aboriginal self-governance and oversight by the federal courts. And um, it's, a, it's an area that the court doesn't really like to be in, and it's an area that I don't think the, the First Nations very much like to be you know, submitting to the court's sort of jurisdiction. Um, I think this is how it will be for a, for a significant period, but there are other ideas out there um, like an indigenous law tribunal that, or a court that is um, constituted by people with backgrounds in indigenous law, and you know, that would be a separate stream that could go off maybe to a, even a Supreme Court of Canada that had a new indigenous um, component to it. Like, just like there's three judges who have background in Quebec law, maybe there's three judges who need to have background in indigenous law, something like that. So there's big structural reforms which are being sort of considered but and I think very slowly because this is like constitutional amendment sort of territory we're almost moving into especially on the Supreme Court but um, in the meantime you know if you do get involved in Aboriginal law you want to be aware that when you're dealing with banned governance issues you do have this opportunity to subject oversight through the federal court any questions about that dispute? Yeah. This might be a throwaway statement, but in paragraph 30, it says the, the court ought to show some deference and respect the decisions of um, indigenous bodies. You went through that they use the test for injunction, but mm -hmm. in general, if a court is reviewing that type of decision, is it entitled to deference just like? Yeah, in general, yes. So if, that's exactly right. So let's say there had been a decision where they had said, look, we we decide not to hold meetings because of this, this, and this reason, that would be entitled to some deference. I mean, it would be hard to get around the clear language of the code, but that would be entitled to some deference. And it could be something like, um, you know, there's a, a, a teaching of an oral history that says there shall not be um, government meetings that go on during, you know, this part of the season or something like that, which that might actually get significant weight and maybe overcome the clear language of the code because Many of these nations, of course, have an oral tradition and sort of a, a written code is an imposed, in a sense, uh, process itself. So yeah, that's a really good point, though, that generally, yes, there is deference. And that actually reminds me of another really good question I was asked at the break that I said I would share with the rest of the class. Um, now, we are sidestepping back into federal court jurisdiction, but I had said, um, you know, if you want to bring an action for damages, or if you want damages, you could seek it in either federal court or the BC Supreme Court. And what I wasn't totally clear on there is if you're doing that, you're not doing a judicial review anymore. You're doing an action. You're, you're starting a civil action, which you could do in federal court. Um, but you can't, just like you can't seek money in the BC Supreme Court for a judicial review, you can't seek money in the federal court. But any other questions about um, the, the governance issues? All right, that's great. So that's going to wrap up our component on the intersection of Aboriginal law and administrative law. Um, 
Of course, there are some discrete issues that arise, but also I do like this because it starts to segue into a bit of a review of the course because a lot of the issues that we talked about in general terms also resonate with some nuance in the Aboriginal context. Um, next class, we are going to talk a bit more about the administrative law in practice, um, just you know, how you actually do a judicial review, these types of things, maybe some more practice tips, things which I, you know, I know isn't usually much of the focus of, um, of law school classes, but I think is valuable. And that will segue nicely into our review next week. I'm finishing writing up the exams. Um, what I've settled on is I'll be doing uh, fact pattern based exams. I think I mentioned that earlier. I'm going to do two fact patterns because trying to shove every, not every issue, but many issues into one fact pattern becomes sort of artificial. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to draft three, um, draft three fact patterns and I'll give you one and two of them will be on the exam. So you'll have one practice fact pattern to go through next week. I'll give that to you on Friday. And um, yeah, any questions or anything like that, I'm happy to talk now or um, email, whatever. Uh, so thanks so much and we'll see you in two days.